scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. I don't have the page of the Pew Bible in front of me, but it's in there. Uh, I do... I do promise that. What is it? 827. Great. Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is God's word. Well, my wife, uh, Carissa, and I just celebrated our 12th wedding anniversary uh, two weeks ago today, June 29th, and I did not even have to look the date up, so I was proud of that fact. Uh, there are a lot of wonderful memories from that day. But as we've both reflected on it, if there was one thing that we would do different on our wedding day, it's the reception after the wedding. We had a lovely ceremony, lots of friends and family, very thought out. We, we wanted to make sure that, that the emphasis was on God and His grace and His glory from beginning to end. But for the reception, we didn't really have much, and so we chose to do an afternoon reception with just kind of cake and punch and kind of not do the whole expensive meal thing for people. Um, In fact, as my wife reminded me the other day, not only did we not have a meal at the reception, we actually didn't eat dinner at all that night. We grabbed a box of chicken and a biscuit crackers on the way to the bed and breakfast. That was our wedding dinner, so if you're taking notes, guys, just skip past that part. That's not something that you want to emulate. But honestly, you know, as we thought about it later, we didn't realize at the time that the reception isn't just about celebrating us, the wedding couple. It's, It's a way of saying thank you and I love you 
to all of the people who are part of that day, to all of the people who are part of our lives leading up to that day and who will continue to be part of it. And so as we've reflected on it, we kind of wish we would have done a better job saying thank you and I love you to all of our friends and family. If you look at weddings in the ancient world, uh, the kind that we see in the Bible, they are a much bigger deal than cake and a box of crackers. They were lavish feasts, sometimes lasting for days. And, and like receptions today, those feasts were both a celebration of the couple and the marriage, but they were also a way of saying thank you and I love you to all of the guests. As the king in our parable this morning sends word to those whom he's invited to the wedding of his son, he says, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. You know, the fattened calves, that was the best of the flock. Those were the ones that were fed and set apart and reserved just for special occasions. So it was a big deal. In fact, uh, one of the predominant pictures used throughout Scripture to communicate God's love for his people is the feast. You have all of these different pictures throughout the Bible of God inviting his people to dinner, to celebrate his love, his mercy, his victory, especially what's known as the messianic banquet. So the banquet hosted by God's Messiah. That's why we call it messianic by God's anointed king, the king who's going to come at the end, who's going to make everything right that's wrong with this world, who's going to claim his victory, and and who is going to invite God's people into his love. Isaiah 25 describes that feast like this. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So it's the picture of of God coming and making all things right, of, of wiping away all tears, but it's framed and it's celebrated and it's commemorated with a lavish feast for God's people. So our passage in Matthew this morning, the parable of the wedding feast, uh, hints at this coming messianic banquet, at this this feast that that God's people have been looking for and longing for and waiting for God's anointed king to come. It hints at that feast, the, the king's throwing a wedding party for his son. And it's a banquet that we ultimately see described in Revelation 19 one of the last few chapters of the Bible, where the church, God's people in Jesus, are both the bride and the guests at the party in the imagery. So Revelation 19, verse 6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, 
and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Such is the love of God for his people. Such is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, God's Son, to be united with Christ for all eternity in a relationship of love and joy. So if you are married, think back to that wedding day and all of the happiness and all of the joy and all of the anticipation of spending your life with this person, multiply that by infinity and then stretch it across eternity and you begin to get a picture of the kind of love and joy waiting for those united with Christ. It's, it's unimaginable that that is the love of God for his people. That is what Christ has purchased his people for, to invite us into this relationship of joy and satisfaction and love, to be able to give glory to God for all eternity as his children, free from sin, free from fear, free from guilt and shame, having been cleansed with the blood of Christ, having been set free from all of the ugliness and decay of this world, and enjoying his presence forever. That's the hope that we have. That's something worth partying about, is it not? And so the question is, as we think about this promise of God's wedding feast, this invitation to this banquet that's coming, the question is that our passage makes us ask this morning is, okay, who's invited to the wedding? Who are the guests? Who's on the guest list? And on what basis will they be able to enjoy this feast and everything that it's pointing to? The victory of Christ, the reign of God, the love he has for his people. And it's an important question. It's something that that we should not make assumptions about as happens in our passage this morning. Because as we see in in, in in our passage this morning, while everyone is invited to that party, the invitation is wide open. Not everybody actually enjoys the benefit of it. Not everyone who accepts the invitation will actually enjoy God's salvation, but only those whose faith is proven genuine through repentance. So let's pray and let's look at this story and understand what is it that God's saying here to his people. Gracious Father, this is your word and we want to hear your voice this morning. That's our goal. As we are gathered uh, in your son's name, we pray that your spirit would be here with us, giving us eyes to see you and ears to hear you, being at work in our hearts to change us. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. Fill us with the joyful anticipation of knowing you and delighting in you forever. And speak to our hearts of 
what it means to be able to have that hope. Lord, call us to yourself. Fill our hearts with love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been going through Matthew's gospel for some time. Obviously, we're now in chapter 22, and we started clear back in in chapter 1 many months ago. Uh, And as we're getting toward the end of Matthew's gospel, we've noticed the last few weeks things are really beginning to kind of heat up and get more and more intense. And they're going to continue to get more and more intense as we get closer and closer to the cross. So Matthew's been making the case from the very first verse of this book that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited king. He's their messianic king, their anointed king. The word Messiah simply means anointed. He's the one on whom God has set his favor and through whom God is going to fulfill all of his promises to his people and and, and who's going to reclaim everything and, and restore everything that's wrong with this broken world. All of the hopes of Israel, all of the hopes of all nations hang on this king. And, and Matthew's been making that point over and over. And yet, Jesus' claim to the throne is by no means widely accepted in this story, uh, especially by Israel's religious leaders. So folks like the Pharisees that we've met over and over again, or the Sadducees, or last week we met the chief priests and the elders who were opposing Jesus. Because if Jesus truly is that king, that means that they're no longer in charge. And they don't like that. They, the pride and power has become far more important to them than making themselves ready for the wedding feast, than, than looking for and watching for this coming feast that God is going to invite his people to. And so last week we watched a, a, an exchange between Jesus and these religious leaders where Jesus kind of revealed what their big problem really is, how they have failed to bear fruit for God's kingdom. Not talking about you know, farming you know, or, or cultivating grapes or figs or something like that, but, but the kind of fruit that's appropriate for God's covenant people, the fruit of righteousness and justice and peace and mercy. These religious leaders were, were given a responsibility by God to shepherd the people of Israel, to cultivate that fruit, to bear that fruit in their own lives, and they failed. They dropped the ball. And Jesus is pointing that out. Their lives are as fruitless as the tree that Jesus cursed on his way into Jerusalem last week. Not last week, but in the story last week. And, and the reason that they were so fruitless, he points out, is because they were faithless. Fruit, bearing fruit for God's kingdom, comes from faith in God's king. And so because they rejected the king... They bore no fruit for God. The religious leaders had neither. And and so our parable this morning is actually part of that ongoing conversation. So imagine, you know, it's kind of like watching a sitcom and, you know, one episode ends and you got to wait a week, but the next one starts off at the exact moment the last one ended. That's how this story's working this morning. This is the same conversation continuing. And and you'll notice some parallels between our parable this morning and the parable of the vineyard that we looked at last week. Particularly, you know, the centrality of the son. So there's a master or a king who has a son and, and who sends his servants to deliver a message. We saw that last week in the, in the parable of the vineyard. And 
with a people who respond violently to those servants. We see that again in both uh, parables. And so look with me at, again, verses 1 through 7. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, when Carissa and I got married, there were several people who were unable to attend our wedding. And we did not take that personally. You know, people have schedule conflicts. You know, uh, we were fortunate enough to get married in Nebraska during the summer. If you have a fall wedding in Nebraska, you actually have to plan your wedding around the Husker football schedule if you want people to show up to the wedding. That's not a joke. That happens and so we didn't have that problem, but, but you know, some people sent their regrets and said, you know what, we can't come. And we didn't respond by torching their houses, okay? So, so you read this story, and it's kind of like, well, that feels a bit extreme, doesn't it, you know? Well, first, we need to remember this is a parable, okay? It's a story designed to illustrate a point. It didn't actually happen, It's a story. And so if parts of it aren't exactly realistic, that's okay. It's a story. It's just trying to make a point. But though it is a story, that doesn't mean that the point that it's making isn't deadly serious. In fact, what's at stake for Israel's leaders in this story is far worse than having their town torched. But the eternal fire of God's judgment that's what's at stake. And so we want to understand what is it God's saying here through this story. And Jesus tells us right in the very first verse, it's a parable about the kingdom of heaven, about the rule and reign of God, how God rules and reigns and establishes his reign on earth as it is in heaven. And he wants us to understand what that's like. And specifically here, he wants us to understand how those who were originally invited to enjoy that rule, to enjoy that reign and and God's love for his people, have by and large rejected the invitation. That's the point he wants them to understand. And so if you step back from the parable and you think about the bigger story of Scripture, the story that's leading up into Matthew's gospel from the Old Testament, we recognize very quickly that God's covenant people were Israel. That's, that's the, the people whom, uh, who inherited the promise that God made to Abraham clear back in Genesis 12, that God was going to make Abraham into a great nation. He was going to bless them, and through them, he was going to bless all peoples of the earth. But, but Abraham was going to become this great nation, and God fulfilled that promise of making him into a great nation through the people Israel, the same people he rescued from slavery in Egypt. The, the people with whom he dwelled in the wilderness and, and, 
in the tabernacle and later in the temple, the people whom he gave his covenant and his law to, that he might rule over them like a king. So, so Israel was the special chosen people of God. And the wedding feast, the feast of God's love and victory, was originally for them. It, in, in some ways, the imagery of wedding feast parallels very closely the imagery of covenant blessing from books like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and so on. So, so they were God's chosen people, elect from all nations to be his own. And yet we also see in the Old Testament that Israel is a people who have consistently run away from God's love and given their love to other gods who aren't really gods. That's one of the other consistent themes of the Old Testament story. And so God is consistently sending his prophets after them. God chose them. God saved them. God made them his people. They're running away. And so God is sending his prophets after them. His love won't let them just run away from him. And so he sends his prophets to war, to, to uh, warn them, to, to repent, to come back to him, to remember that these false gods, they're nothing. They're lifeless. They can't satisfy you. I'm the real thing. I love you. I gave you know, I'm giving everything for you, so come back to me that, that you might be part of this feast. And if you don't, there will be consequences. There are consequences of judgment according to God's law for his covenant people. And so our parable shows us that the general pattern of Israel's story is that instead of responding to the servants, the prophets who went, instead of responding to their invitation... With joy and repentance, they by and large snubbed God. They responded with complacency and presumption. They presumed upon their election as God's people. They took God's favor for granted. And so when the day of his son and the wedding comes and the invitation goes out, they ignored it. They snubbed it. Verse 5, they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. And, and among those uh, people, there were some who didn't just ignore it. They actually violently opposed it. The rest seized his servants, a picture for the prophets. They treated them shamefully and killed them, just like what happened to God's prophets throughout the Old Testament story, just like what came to a culmination with John the Baptist. But that same final prophet among the prophets leading up to, to the son, John the Baptist, warned the religious leaders against this kind of behavior. Clear back in Matthew chapter 3. We, we read these verses last week, but they're appropriate to remember again this morning. John told Israel and her leaders to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, to not presume upon their election... As God's people, as he says there, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. We're good. We're fine. Doesn't matter what we do or how we live. We got Abraham as our father. Don't presume upon that. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Israel's presuming upon their election, and so therefore they're not taking seriously God's call to follow his king and to obey. They ignored the invitation, which is a massive insult at best, 
and is outright rebellion at worst with the, the religious leaders violently persecuting God's prophets. And so the king in the story is very upset. He sends his troops to punish the murderers, the rebels, the religious leaders, by burning their city, which is probably a foreshadowing of what Jesus alludes to in chapter 24, of how Jerusalem is going to be torn down brick by brick. God takes this stuff seriously, and yet his people were presuming upon their calling. They were presuming upon God's grace. And so, like we saw in chapter 21 with the parable of the vineyard, the kingdom is removed from the religious leaders here. And like we saw in chapter 21, it's going to be given to a people producing its fruits. And we see that in chapter 22, verses 8 through 10, where where the wedding invitation is now expanded to include everyone. So verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. What Jesus is depicting here is a new stage in God's unfolding plan of salvation. So from the exodus up to the coming of the anointed king, God's plan of salvation centered on Israel. They carried forward the promise of Abraham, through whom God was going to reclaim his vision for creation. Everything that went wrong in the garden, God was going to make that right again. He was going to do it by keeping this promise to Abraham, which was carried forward through his people Israel. But that was pointing all the while to this king who would do what Israel themselves were incapable of doing. And so now that the king has come, the promise given to Abraham is coming into full bloom. If if you remember, if you've spent any time reading some of the story of Genesis, you'll remember that, that when God makes his promise to Abraham, it was for a people but, but there was a blessing that was going to go beyond those people. Abraham was going to become a father, not just of one nation, but of a multitude of nations. That is now coming to fruition as the promise comes through Israel. And now the invitation goes out to all peoples, all peoples of the earth, who become Abraham's children, not through their descendancy, but through faith in God's son. And, and we even see this movement in Matthew's gospel itself, as we've been following the story of Matthew's gospel. We're reminded, you know, at the beginning of the book that Jesus is Israel's king, and he tells us a couple of times that he came to seek out the lost sheep of Israel. We see that in chapter 10. We saw that in chapter 15. So, so it starts with that focus on God's covenant people, Israel. But we've also seen the door beginning to open to all nations. You think of the Canaanite woman in chapter 15. You think of the the centurion in chapter 8, where Jesus also spoke about who was going to be at this wedding feast at the end of time. He says back in chapter 8, verses 10 through 12, speaking of this non-Jewish centurion who trusted Jesus, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table 
with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You hear some echoes of our own story back in chapter 8. And so there's this unfolding plan of God's salvation, that what God is going to accomplish through Israel, he's fulfilling through Israel's king, and that's going to all nations. And so by the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus shows up after his resurrection and commissions his apostles, he says, not just go to the lost sheep of Israel, go and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups, to the ends of the earth. The message of the gospel, the message that Jesus is king, that he has done what is necessary to establish God's kingdom and to deal with our sin through his life, death, and resurrection, that message is to be sowed and shared indiscriminately. It is to go to every corner of the earth among every people everywhere. Which is not to say, again, that God is washing his hands of Israel. That's not what's happening here. Rather, I mean, after all, all 12 apostles were Jewish. Paul was Jewish. God's not washing his hands of Israel. He's fulfilling his plan for Israel through their king. That's what's happening here. The message of the kingdom is for everyone. It's for everyone. It's for everyone here. doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is, what language you speak, your age, your gender, your marital status, your financial portfolio. None of that matters. The message of God's kingdom is for everyone. It doesn't matter how righteous you are or how wicked you are. God's message, God's invitation is for you. Despite the frequent criticism... Christianity is the most inclusive world religion that there is. Everyone is welcome into it. Everyone. Come as you are. And yet, that doesn't mean that God will leave you as you are. All are invited to come as they are. But God, in his love, changes us. The invitation is for everyone. But the reality is when it comes down to it, not all who accept that invitation, not all who say, you know, yeah, Jesus, I'll follow you, at the end of the day want to be changed by God. And so therefore not all who, who accept that invitation stay in the party. Only those whose faith bears fruit through repentance, through turning away from sin. And that's the surprising part of this passage. You know, if, if the parable had ended at verse 10, we might have been able to say, well, there's really not a whole lot added by this parable that we didn't see in last week's parable of the vineyard. But the main point of this parable actually has yet to come. It comes at the end. That's the twist. That's the, the, the surprise, the unique contribution. And so look at verses 11 through 14 with me. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. 
That's the twist in the parable. And if we're honest, that's not exactly the ending that most of us want to hear. Uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, We want to hear a nice story about God throwing a party open to everyone. We want, as people now fashionably say, to be, quote, inclusive, to let everyone in. We don't want to know about judgment on the wicked or about the demanding standards of holiness or about weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'd like to leave that part out. We look back at verses 8 through 10 in this wide-open invitation to everyone, the bad and the good. But as Wright continues, there's a difference between this wide-open invitation and the message that so many want to hear today. What we want to hear is that everyone is all right exactly as they are, that God loves us as we are and doesn't want us to change. People often say this when they want to justify particular types of behavior, but the argument doesn't work. When the blind and lame came to Jesus, he didn't say, you're all right as you are. He healed them. They wouldn't have been satisfied with anything less. When the prostitutes and extortioners came to Jesus, he didn't say, you're all right as you are. His love reached them where they are, but his love refused to let them stay as they were. Think of that. His love reached them where they were, but his love refused to let them stay as they were. Love wants what's best for the beloved. Their lives were transformed, healed, changed. The right continues. Actually, nobody really believes that God wants everyone to stay exactly as they are. God loves serial killers and child molesters. God loves ruthless and arrogant businessmen. God loves manipulative mothers who damage their children's emotions for life. But the point of God's love is that he wants them to change. He hates what they're doing and the effect that it has on everyone else and on themselves too. Ultimately, if he's a good God, He cannot allow that sort of behavior or that sort of person if they don't change to remain forever in the party he's throwing for his son. Christ didn't spill his blood for nothing. He didn't spill his blood to make us feel better about ourselves. He spilled it to rescue us from ourselves, to rescue us from our sin, from our brokenness, from everything that's wrong in our lives, from everything in our hearts that moves us further and further away from God, Christ died to bring us to him. And that means his love is going to change us. It's going to heal what's been broken. It's going to cleanse us and clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. That's what the wedding garments are referring to here, the the changed life of obedience that comes from knowing Christ. There are all sorts of different ideas about what the wedding garments are, what's the guy not, you know, what's wrong with him such that he's kicked out of the party. But if we take this passage in context of the other parables around it, and if we keep in mind the same imagery from Revelation 19 and the wedding 
feast there where the garments are, quote, you know, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, then the garments here refer to lives of obedience. Not as the basis of our acceptance by the king. You know, God doesn't love us because we obey. Rather, those garments of obedience are the fruit of our acceptance. They're the evidence of our changed life, the evidence of our faith. As we talked about last week, the reason that the religious leaders bore no fruit of repentance is because they had no faith in the king. Fruit comes from faith in Jesus, the cornerstone. And that faith will produce fruit in God's people because God's spirit is at work. And so the invitation is to everyone. All are invited. But not all who accept it actually enjoy the benefits. Many are called, invited. Few are chosen. Only those whose lives are changed by the gospel of God's grace. Only those who truly trust in Jesus, who don't just give lip service to say, yeah, Christ, I'll follow you because I'm really hoping that I'm going to get something out of it or whatever other motivation, but those who recognize the depravity of their hearts, the sickness of their sin, and say, I have no hope but Christ. He is my king. I will follow him, and who trust and follow Christ. Those whose faith is genuine, and the genuineness of our faith is shown out in the change in our lives, in our obedience, our repentance. You can't crash the wedding supper of the Lamb. You must be clothed in Christ. Your, your heart must be bearing fruit for Christ. Now, as we think about what that means for us, it's telling that when the king confronts this man, he's speechless, the, the person without the wedding garments. He's speechless. He has no defense. He knows that he's guilty. And I think that's instructive for many of us here. We shouldn't read a passage like this and start, you know, wringing our hands nervously, wondering, have I borne enough fruit to stay in the party? You know, is my faith in Jesus genuine enough? Do I really mean it when I pray? Am I sorry enough for my sin? And so on. And, and just begin to fill our hearts with guilt and fear. If that's the way that you're wired such that when you read a passage like this that, that you begin to, to, to get really worried and afraid, is this talking about me? Am I really saved? Did I, you know, am I, what if I'm really not a Christian and so on? The fact that you're even asking those questions and worried about that is itself evidence that you know Jesus because you wouldn't be worrying about it if you didn't. Okay, So just take that comfort here. It's instructive here that... that the offending party knew full well he didn't belong there. He was crashing the wedding, if you will. It's those who read a passage like this whose hearts remain unmoved. Those are the ones who should be afraid. Whether they don't care enough out of pride or indifference to even consider the warning, those are the ones who really need God to open their ears. That said, we don't want to miss the warning that these verses make, uh, the, the warning that these verses offer, and, and risk making the same mistake that the religious leaders made and presuming upon 
our calling and election, presuming upon God's grace and saying, well, you know, I prayed a prayer back in the day at some time. Everything's fine here forward, even if my life doesn't look any different from the world. We don't want to miss the opportunity to think carefully about that warning against presuming upon God's kindness, taking his grace for granted. We cannot, as Paul says in Romans 2, 4, presume upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Catch that last phrase there. God's kindness, God's love is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to bear fruit in our lives in in helping us turn away from sin. If we truly get the kindness of God, if I truly understand who he is and what he's done for me, that will lead to a life that wants to follow him. That will lead to a life of repentance. And so the question I want to ask myself, and I encourage you to ask, do I still marvel at God's love for me? Do I still marvel at the grace of God for me? The reality is that none of us deserve to attend that wedding. Left to ourselves, not a single one of our names would be on that guest list. We... We like to see ourselves as, you know, uh, we always we like to see ourselves in the most positive light possible. When in reality, left to ourselves, we're the rebels in this story. We're the insurrectionists. Apart from the grace of God, we would be right there with the religious leaders doing the same thing. But as Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, while we were still plotting our rebellion against God's throne, Christ died for us. He didn't come and say, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do for you, but here's what you got to do for me first. And I need you to clean this up, stop doing this, start doing it. And if you do that, then maybe I'll think about giving my life to rescue you. It didn't work that way. He looked on a world who was in the process of of mounting a rebellion against heaven and said, I love them. I'm going to send my son to go die that they could become, instead of rebels, they've even become my children. That's the love of Christ for us. God has done more for us than this king does for the people in this parable. He's not only invited us to a lavish dinner, which is an expression of his love. He's adopted us into his family through Christ. He sent his son to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve for our sin, to cleanse us, to clothe us, to change our hearts, to make us his children who look like the father. When when you look at A Christian, you should say, oh, wow, that's what God's like in our love and our character. That's the goal. That's why he's at work to change our lives. And so if you are a Christian, if Jesus is your king and your savior, then when God looks at you, he does not see the laundry list of mistakes and regrets that you carry around in your pocket. He doesn't see all of the the faults and fears 
that we spend our days worrying about. He's taken all our sin, all our brokenness. He's canceled it through the blood of his son. He's buried it in the bottom of the sea so that when he looks at you, he sees the child whom he loves. Do you really believe that? Do you really marvel over God's love for you in Christ? Jesus says in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Make your home in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. His kindness leads to repentance. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. To abide in God's love. If you're not a Christian, if you're just exploring these kinds of things, trying to figure out what in the world the fuss is about, then I want you to know that the invitation to this banquet, the invitation to God's love and to God's kingdom is for you. God's love is for you. He wants to make you his child through Christ. He wants to take what's broken in your life and he wants to make it whole. And sometimes he does that right away. Sometimes there's a long journey of suffering that looks an awful lot like his cross. Usually it's both and. But he wants to make you whole. And when Christ returns, he will complete that work. He wants to change your heart, to adopt you into his family, to show you what it means to be loved and to love. What it truly means. As Paul says in Titus, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, being declared not guilty of our sin by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Children of God, heirs of his kingdom. Such is the love of the Father for us. Such is the hope that we have in his son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You see us in full, though in many ways we try and hide ourselves from you or hide ourselves from one another. 
Lord, thank you that we can't hide from you. And thank you that we don't have to. Because you have done everything necessary to cleanse us, to make us whole. I pray, Jesus, that where whatever burden is laid on each heart in this room, whether it's a fear, whether it's shame, whether it's guilt, whatever it is, uh, whatever way that this fallen world is showing itself in our lives today, God, would your spirit minister to that? Would you call your people to abide in your love? For those who do not know you, would you call them to know you? Would you give them faith according to your grace to be united with your son, to know what it truly means to be loved and to love? For those of us who do know you, who have been cleansed of our sin through Christ, who are robed in his righteousness, may we have hope and joy in your love. And may that joy produce obedience in our hearts, God. May we not take your grace for granted. May we always, every day, remember it and celebrate it and depend on it. Thank you that Jesus is enough. Thank you that Jesus is all we have. We ask it in his name. Amen.